Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. This is episode 8 of season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We in healthcare are not, alas, the first to digitize an entire sector of the economy. Oddly, we are the last. Let's just say that we wanted everyone else to get all the kinks sorted out first. And since we get to go last, let's not repeat the same mistakes. Let's learn from the past. Let's learn from the banking industry. Javier Escobedo had a front seat during a tech boom in banking and will share with us the lessons learned while digitizing the banking sector. After speaking for over an hour at TED 2019 with Javier, I knew we had to bring him to DocSF to share his lessons with our audience. Javier did not disappoint. Let's join him as he takes the microphone on the DocSF stage in San Francisco. And so we're going to wrap it up a little bit with a talk from Javier Escobedo, who I had a chance of meeting when I went to TED this year. And there's a rainstorm, no, no surprise, in Seattle. And I went up in a coffee shop and we went up talking. And I said, just hold on a second. Let me just whip out my notebook because so many things you're saying are so interesting to me. I just started taking notes. At the end of a couple of pages, I said, you know, you have to come to DocSF and speak to our audience because I think they need to hear this message, which has been gleaned over years and years of experience. When I went back, is it really it's 30 years in corporate America primarily, but also in Latin America. He's worked as an advisor, an investor. He's moved from CBG then onto Microsoft, spent time at launching Windows 95 and from that point on, had a very digital trajectory and advised companies in digital topics in over 12 countries and four continents. And he found that in the process of doing so, most of them had similar problems in launching their strategic initiatives. So we're sort of coming a little back to some of the topics that we covered earlier with Gary Kovacs, but from a different perspective and um, from a very, very interesting, little McKenzie-ish point of view where you started. So would you please welcome to the stage Javier Escobedo. Thank you, Javier. Yeah. Well, hi. Thank you very much for having me here. I think we've lost some of the people. I guess the rest of the people that are here is because the drinks are next, not to watch me. So that's been there, done that before. So I'm Javier Escobedo. Um, basically, 30 years in corporate a couple of years ago, I moved into advising companies because I realized being in multiple industries, multiple large companies, they all have the same problems. So I kind of said, you know, it's an easier way of life to actually go and tell the same story to many people instead of trying to fix the problems myself. So that's kind of what I do now after all these years. So basically, what's been super interesting for me is that I have gone through many transformations. So I started my career, as Stefano was saying, at Procter & Gamble 30 years ago. And then I went to Microsoft. Back then, it was a small company. We were about 24,000, 23,000 people. My email address was Javier E at Microsoft.com. So it was, I was there in the very beginning. And I started seeing all these transformations in all these industries that are very, very, very similar. So 
what happened up until 2015 or 2014 is that a new technology came in and the people that were there died. You can think about all the companies, all the internet companies that Google ate up. You can think about all the advertising companies that also Google ate up. But also, I worked for Expedia, as you saw on the last slide, all the traditional travel agencies died. But what has happened lately is that in the transformation of highly complex, highly regulated industries, the incumbents are not dying. They're trying to transform, they're failing, and they're just resulting in a very, very bad experience for the companies themselves, for their customers or patients, and for the shareholders. So if you open any newspaper almost any day, it's full of news like this. Digital transformation is failing, we're behind, we're not being able to do it. And because, as I said, these incumbents are not dying, we're in a little bit of a limbo. Now, what I'm devoting my career now is to actually going and advising companies as to what are the key issues that are preventing this transformation. And they're surprisingly similar across industries and across countries. So I've done this from all the from Canada all the way up to Argentina. I've done it from Turkey, Australia. I've done it in Europe. So it's about the same thing. So what I'm going to share with you over the next few minutes is three things that I've found across the board. And these are things that have two characteristics. The first one is they're fairly easy to solve if you solve them from the beginning, and very difficult if you don't. And the second is, I'm just gonna tell them to you, but they're super hard to do. That's the reason why people are not doing them, because they require much more than just an agreement. They require deep change at the top of the organization. So let me take you through the first one. The first one is not having alignment on a technical architecture. And what happens, this is the situation. I go into a company and I go either to the digital side of things, I go to the marketing, to whatever department. It could be to you guys. And I've heard this many, many times. They tell me, you know what? I'm fighting with the CTO or with the technology side of things. They won't let me do anything. So, you know, I'm putting together these scrums or this whatever, and I'm building it myself. I'm so smart. I got some funding and I'm building this thing. I'm building this app or I'm building this system or I'm building this or that, this app. And my first question is, what are you building on? What technology are you using? How are you using it? What kind of security are you using? And they tell me, you know, we picked some of the best. And let me tell you how the word looks when you take one step back. This is the marketing technology landscape. Each one of those little squares, and it's very hard to see, particularly from the back, each one of those little squares has all the players, all the technological offerings for particular things. So some of these may be agile and project management, build business intelligence, sales enablement, all of the pieces of the chain, each one of those has those. But take a look at, you can't see it, but at the top right, you're gonna say that's January 2014. It's a little old. This is how it looks today. Okay, so if these departments go out there and build this thing over a technology that's multiplying at this speed, what happens is they've spent the money, they've actually put everything together for this thing to be functioning in a certain way without coordination with the technology part of the business and the, the chief technology officer. And what happens is it doesn't plug in. And then, oh, this guy won't let me do the stuff. We're ready to go. And the bad guy's kind of the CTO. And the CTO is saying, oh, they're bringing me subpar software. It's built on things that don't connect. 
So there's a simple solution to this that I've seen, and I brought this from the travel industry to the financial services industry, and it was very successful. I would just pass it on as a tip. And it's creating an architecture that's very, very simple to explain and to look at. And I'm going to give you some examples to see how it looks. So this is a shoe company. What these guys did is before they started the process of building anything, when they were fighting with the CTO, they sat down and created this architecture. And it has what's important to them. It has analytics, operations, the customer-facing things, and the consumer-facing things, because they're two-step distribution, and what technology they're going to use. So they sit around the table, the executive committee of the company, the digital transformation person, but the product person, everybody sits down and agrees to this. And you don't start building anything until there's agreement. And that's usually what I recommend as I advise these companies is that the CEO or the top executive or the division or whatever tells, just like I do with my kids, you sit down and you sort it out. You're not leaving the room until you have agreement. But I'm showing you this example because it shoots. It's not technology, right? Then the technologies company, technology companies themselves have the same kind of architecture. And you can see it's laid out in a different way, but what they have is the main parts of the business, right? Is data and operations, seller, partner, customer, because this is a software operation. More complex is the Microsoft stack. And this is the way they're communicating it. And they have a lot of stuff that's Microsoft only, but they're plugging some holes with things like Salesforce over there, right? Or Trapid or some other things that they don't build themselves. So this way they communicate that they are able to have a complete solution even they don't build the whole thing. Now, sitting down and building an architecture is incredibly important for success. And if you are part of a digital team or a transformation team and you don't have an architecture, I sincerely recommend that you do. And I'll show you one last example. And this is a cheese company, Sargento Cheese. So, and they basically took the architecture in a fun way that really drove the whole organization around it by, you know, linking it to their product and to what they do. So you just have some fun doing it. There's many, many ways of doing it. There are all these examples of different ways of doing an architecture, but it's super, super important that this is well thought out and agreed upon the whole management team. And what happens is this is not talked about that much. There's all these conversations about technology, all these cool things that come. It's like the previous talk. If you don't make that product part of the architecture, it's going to be hard, right? So you're going to run into problems. We see all these cool technologies that we'd like to bring into the fold, but unless you have agreement, it's going to be hard. So I'll finish this first part with two important comments here. As I was saying, making this complicated process easier is a big reason why to do it. But the second one is if you are the, the unit that's being transformed, the most important thing is for you to be plug and play. You want to be seen in the rest of the organization as the guys that transformed and then came into the fold in a very, very easy and simple way. Now, the three recommendations I would make, so you take something practical talking about execution. The first one is do it now. Don't wait till tomorrow, get to the office on Monday and say, guys, get your IT guy or whomever's designing your systems or starting to build and say, show me our architecture. They're probably going to look at you funny. They don't have it. And you say, let's do it right now. Let's get, let's book a day. Let's take a, a day and an offsite and do it. The second one, that's very important. Sunk costs are sunk. If you already gone down the wrong path 
and you're using a technology that is not vetted by your CTO, and you did that because your CTO was blocking you, forget about what you've spent. You've got to go back and use something that your CTO will take. Because if not, you're going to continue building on it. It's never going to plug into the rest of the organization. So that second one is really, really hard. I've had to, in some of the companies that I've advised, this is one of the most painful things because it's always, but, but we've already spent this money, but you've got to forget about it. And that one's hard. And then the last one, it's got to be super easy to understand. That's why I go back to some of the examples that I showed today in the sense of making interesting to your area or to your particular expertise, and it should be easy to understand. So that's the first one. The second one, and this is another one that if you take a look, and it's happening in this conference, as in, and I do quite a bit of public speaking in many different forums, and usually, it's, it's almost 100% of the time, there's no talks about HR. No talks, no talks. So we're transforming, we're doing this, all this, but there's not a lot of talk about HR. HR is super, super important. Let me tell you why it is so important. The good digital talent is very, very, very scarce. So take a look at these numbers. On the left-hand side, you have the demand for data scientists. It's a, almost vertical. A lot of demand out there. Everybody wants a data scientist in their teams. Now, when you take a look at the right, the supply is tight right now. And up until the studies that I've seen, in 2024, still in 2024, there's no end in sight. This shortage may last 10 years. Particularly when you take a look at the people that are coming out of engineering schools. Sorry about this. It's very hard to see from back there. But the line at the top is the business majors, or the people coming out of business school. Not necessarily graduate, but undergraduate. And right there at the bottom, where circle in red, is engineering. So it's growing, but it's not growing as fast as others. So this means that there's not going to be a lot of people there. So, okay, so you're saying, with, you know, this guy just came right before the drinks to make me sad. That's not my, that's not my intention. Well, before I give you some good news, let me tell you more bad news. The other bad news is that compensation is the most important factor. Don't get confused. It is the most important factor. Actually, it's the two most important factors. The number one factor is total comp, and the second one is bonuses and variable compensation. Now, on the right-hand side, you're going to see how most of the companies that are very digitally focused pay in terms of stock-based compensation, and stock that grows really, really fast, going back to an example they were giving earlier today. So you're gonna see that most of these companies, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Salesforce, LinkedIn no more, but Yahoo Alphabet, they're well above the average, and then you have Tesla, Microsoft, Oracle, Amazon, and Apple, a little bit below the average, but you take a look at the S&P 500 and the rest of the S&P 500, and it's way at the bottom. I don't know where you are, but, you know, I've been a patient at UCSF for a long, long time. I don't know if they pay you with equity. I don't think there's even equity there. So you're trying to attract a very scarce beast with no currency to pay, right? So it's hard. The last thing is even if you had a ton of cash, the digital talent is expensive. So what you can see in this chart is on the left-hand side, I took just any kind of non-digital 
position. In this case, I just took a marketing analyst, but it could be an accountant. It could be, you know, any clerical staff. And I took San Francisco just to, you know, be consistent here on both sides. On the right-hand side, you take a data scientist. Both of these have about the same level of experience in terms of years of experience, a number of years of schooling. And you can see that there's a 30% difference. If you're some of the cheapo places that you pay at the bottom of the scale for that particular position, it's even worse. You can get up to almost 40%. If you're one of the very good payers, and unfortunately in the healthcare space is not known for being top-notch payers, at least for the clerical positions, that can be a big problem. So having said all of that, what do you do? The first thing that you do is you try to realize where those people are and how you are going to be able to attract them. So first thing is if you are in one of those places that has a blue dot, which is where there's engineering talent, and it's basically here on LA, Portland, Seattle, New York, a little bit Minneapolis. If you are someplace else, you're going to have to find a way to set up something in a place where you can hire digital talent. Because what happens is if you, the really good digital talent is in those places where you see at the left and is not willing to move, as you will see in the right. So that's one thing that I leave you with today is if you try to bring people to wherever you live that doesn't have a blue dot, you're going to get some part talent. So it's going back to your organization and saying, how can we actually build something in a place where there's good engineering? You can either hire it out. You can either put a satellite office. You can either, there's a bunch of things you can do. You can hire them temporarily to come to where you are, but not move them. There's multiple things to do. So number one, think about geography. And then I'll give you a couple of other thoughts here. The first one is create a value proposition. Again, with most of these companies that I advise, I say, why would anybody want to come and work for you? Number one answer is because we're black. Fill in the name of your company, right? Really famous, everybody knows. Nobody wants to go to a company just for the name of the company. That's a huge mistake. So what is your value proposition? What is it in it for them? Knowing that the number one and number two things are compensation, you don't have any money, you're going to have to sit down and think it through. Most of the successful cases I've seen is taking a budget where they have, pick your number, $10 million and 40 position, and keeping the 10 million and reducing it to 20. That's the kind of conversation that needs to happen that's really, really hard, and that's why it doesn't happen. And that takes me to the second one, budget appropriately. Make sure that you are considering what it costs. So another mistake I see a lot is, oh, I, man, I can't pay 140000 for an engineer. I can't. He's been making more than his boss. Well, tough luck. The boss is not an engineer. That's the way it works. And there's this saying that if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Don't do that. So you have to find a way. So this is kind of really crazy. because, And then even the HR organization would come and say, I don't even have a chart that goes that high. 
right? So you're going to have to work through the organization. And that's why it's important to engage in the conversation in the beginning and put this on the table. And usually that's why they bring people like me to actually go in there and be the bearer of bad news and tell the HR guy, well, there's no option, right? We've got to find a way to do it. And I'm happy over drinks to tell the story to anyone of how we actually made those in places like Expedia, how we were able to pay for the same level of experience pay differently to a person that was on the website side than the people that were on the hotel relationship side, which is more an account management job and not technical. So, and the last one is, what's your geographic strategy? (laughs) I had a client in Birmingham, Alabama that wanted to attract good engineers. You know how that went. But the interesting thing is that where we got to the solution is that they opened up a temporary satellite studio. They didn't even call it an office in Austin. And the idea was to just do it for a couple of years and be able to build what they needed to build. And they did it. And it's, it's still not finished, but it's working really well. So what's your geographic strategy? What are you going to do about it? So that's the second one. And then the third one, which I'm not going to go too much into detail, is the money. And the money is a huge issue. I would guess that most of you, as you go into transformation, into buying new technology, money is a big, big issue. And what I've seen, how this plays out, is that if you're in charge of transformation or bringing in digital technology, you go in and you say, I'm going to start building this thing. The CFO allows you or gives you a certain amount of money for, you know, for this quarter, for this year, you start spending, you don't have an architecture. So you start buying a few things, you build a couple scrums, you're starting to put things together. And then what happens is that you're short on revenues in a quarter, or they need a little bit more profits. And they say, you know what, we're going to give you 10 million, but you know, you got to give me two back. And then you end up saying, how can I build this thing with half the money? So that's really, really hard. So again, apologies. And the colors are not the ways that it's supposed to be. And it's a little smaller than I wanted. So I'm going to tell you what this chart has is the key questions to ask on the financial side and how to deal with them. So I'm happy to afterwards, maybe you can share with the attendees what this is. But I'll take you through this very quickly, about a minute each. The first one is, do you know what the total cost is? You can't go into a transformation and spend as you go. You got to sit down, have your architecture, understand your geographic strategy, understand the people you're going to have, map it out and say, this is how much it's going to cost. In one of the opportunities that I had to transform a bank, and at that time I was in, in the operating role myself, we came up with a budget of 25 million. And I actually we came up with a budget of 12 million and I told the CEO that it was 25. And so he said, okay, you can have 20. But we knew that that's how much it was gonna cost. And then that takes me to the second point, which is that money, I told him, okay, you give me 25, but I'm gonna give you 50 to 100 in savings. We actually built a business that ended up being about a billion dollars in revenue with those 25. But you gotta map it out. So people will actually be open. I've heard from the CFO, I'm dying to give all these units money, but they gotta have a very clear case. So you go in, understanding how much you spend, then you tie it back to the PL. And then the third one is having the phones ring fence. So there's gotta be an agreement to say if it's gonna cost. 20, and I've agreed to 20, you cannot cut it to 15, because I cannot build three quarters of a transformation. 
I can either do it or not do it. But that's going to be something that, that's going to be what called ring fence. In some cases, I've had the CEO go to the board and say, we will not touch that even if we have an emergency for a quarter. Because it's a play, because you haven't seen the results, and if you're doing spend as you go, it's the first thing to be cut. So it's really important to understand for them to get the billion dollar business and to get the 250 or 200 million in savings, they gotta spend it full 20 or 25. And then the last one is the clear governance. We have to have an agreement among everyone, the CFO, the CIO, who's connecting the stuff with every, the HR guy that's trying to get the talent in a city that's hard, et cetera. What is the governance? Are we gonna get together once a month? What dashboards are we gonna look at? Happens to me very often that I go to a CEO and I say, how are you reviewing your transformation? Well, I have these dashboards. And who makes it the dashboards? Well, the same guy that's transforming. And I say, well, no wonder. Are they always green? Like perfectly, yeah. Oh, so the transformation is going really well. Yeah, you don't have no idea how the transformation is going because you are actually putting the transformation team to be judge and jury and it's never, never good. So. Once you have that governance, you tie back to the PL, you make sure they're not cutting the money, you have your architecture very, very clear, you know where your people are coming from, then you can start having a meaningful transformation, right? So there's a few more of these that I find from time to time. I'll leave you with these three that are the most important. And basically, when you put these three things together, things go well. And I'll tell you the flip side of that. If you don't put these three things together, the chances of this going well are very, very small. But I've seen some really big successes in the kind of complex transformations you can do if you focus on these three things. That's it, thanks. Thank you, Javier. Um, it was the right decision to bring you back. I thought that was <laughs> outstanding and super helpful. As I was listening to the tech stack, though, I just want to go back to that because not everybody in the audience is as technologically uh, acquainted with the idea of architecture. Can you just give us a little more understanding of what you mean by architecture? Okay. Architecture is like it sounds, architecture. So think about how I explain it to the non-technical is like this. Think about you're building a house, okay? And you say, well, I'm kind of hungry. So I'm just going to over here buy what I need, a stove, and you know to these two three things and i'm going to plug in the gas i need a lamp and then oh i'm sleepy i'm going to and then you kind of put a, what you end up with that is a disaster you don't have a place to live it's not functional you built it how you need it versus what you do is you create a plan that says every piece that you're going to need for everything that you're going to have to build and then if you do the kitchen first, that's fine, but you know where it goes, you know what size it is because it's gonna match with everything else. So it's the same thing. You're gonna need certain pieces, not only architecturally, but in terms of process and in terms of compensation, money, whatever, that needs to be in your architecture. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, I think so. With that, I wanna just thank you for taking us through that and that was really, really useful. I know I was taking Pleasure. notes furiously. So thank you so much. Thank you and, and um, you I'll be outside if anybody has any questions. Yeah. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. 
please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast.